welcome to the Red Dove Podcast. We are women storytellers, and our stories center on Black women, activism, and mental health. I'm Rainy. And I'm Liz. And I'm Blue. So, Doves, we're really excited. We've got amazing news. We have been included in Apple Podcasts Women's History Month collection. This collection celebrates the past and present legacy of self-identifying women. The collection has essential conversations for and by women while centering and celebrating intersectionality, which you guys know we are all about. So we're super excited and grateful to be included in this collection, and we hope you enjoy the conversations that we're having today. Today, we thought we'd talk about Shirley Chisholm. Well, I mean, there's some intersectionality in that for sure. Just a little. <laughs> just a little. Great way to start off the month. We have prepared several episodes. We, as the doves know, we record in advance and we had several stories, but both of you chose Shirley Chisholm as the story that we would start with on Women's History Month. I'm just curious, what is it about Shirley that made you want to talk about her? Oh, I mean, I guess my thought is having someone who's paved the way and walks ahead of you and knows and you know that they're able to accomplish things and make moves and shake things up it gives you a reminder that you can do the same and you don't have to fall to the the labels that others put upon you or even assign things to yourself right like we definitely want to say, oh, this is the type of person that I am, or this is what I do. This is what I say. I'm realizing that it is okay for me to change with the wind at times. You know, if that's what I need to do, then that's what I need to do. I love that. I agree. Like, it is so inspiring. She's amazing. I love your reason for that, Blue. I think for me, I wanted Shirley Chisholm because she was one of the very first women I ever heard about who was making a chair at the table where decisions were being made. You know, like we'd heard stories of all these other strong black women before who were fighting to just be let into the house, you know, just like I need somebody to listen to our grievances and include us in the conversation. And as a young girl learning through black history and having to do the research on my own because it wasn't available to me in my classes, I had to do this outside, finding out that and in such a relatively, for me, a long time ago, not on the grand scheme of history, but, you know, for my eyes to have a woman who was like, not only am I going to get people to care about our issues, I'm going to be in the room where decisions are being made and I'm going to help make the decisions. Like, it's no longer trying to get someone to listen to us, to go take our issues to, you know, the top. I'm going to be at the top so I can talk about my issues myself. And, I completely agree. You know, and it, it kind of feels like that was kind of like learning about Shirley Chisholm was kind of like that new wave of black female activism, you know, like this kind of new, like, no, 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 we are going to be on the same level and, and kind of seeing how that is really just skyrocketed in the last 50 years of, yeah, black women are where choices are being made and where laws are being made and we are influencing the country not just for the here and now but for the foreseeable and the unforeseeable future too and she just has always been kind of that hallmark of that shift in the narrative for me so that's why I think I was really excited to 
talk about Shirley today in Women's History Month. I mean, talk about making history as a woman. So yeah, that's why it was right. important. Bold right. moves. I mean, even what you're saying about um, having the seat at the table and presenting the issues, to me, that's the element of humanizing the Black woman, right? And saying that these things really are affecting us, they're being done to us, which is that delicate side, that side that says we are able to be, for the lack of a better word, but at the same time punctured, right? Because the decisions that you're making are harming us as they currently stand. And then also being able to say, and I'm strong enough and intelligent enough and loud enough and bold enough, you know, and whatever, what else do they say about us? you know, as brown, dark-skinned women. Um, in your face, I will be all of those things because these things are literally puncturing me. They are causing me harm. And we, just like you said, because I'm at the table now, we will address them. Right. I love, I love it. it. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> but as many of you know, Shirley Chisholm was the first Black congresswoman, um, and she began her political career in Brooklyn, which is where she was born and where she has been living for a number of years. But fun fact, Shirley was born in Brooklyn, but then spent like five of her like childhood years living in Barbados, where her family is from. Her parents and relatives were among thousands of different immigrants that traveled to America and settled in New York. We've covered lots of like great migration stories and it's all interconnected. But Shirley, yeah, Shirley brought, yeah, there's gonna be like so much interconnectedness. It's certainly because of like Shirley but it's also like you know we've had like over a hundred episodes so far so like the beginning episodes was really really laying the foundation of our history of American history through a black feminist perspective but Shirley was really successful she was a really sharp intelligent politician and from the beginning of her career until the end, she always brought what we call black feminist politics to the U.S. politics and national government. In terms of talking about what Shirley did, black feminist politics would mean focusing on legislation that helps poor black people. And then as a result, all poor people would be helped. And some of the examples from Shirley's career include housing, food, gun violence, abortion, equality for women, and equality for the LGBTQ plus community. You know what I think is like so awesome is like understanding even then like, you know, we can't thrive if all of us don't thrive. Like if one of us is failing, all of us are failing. So, you know, helping and making sure poor black people are okay you know, that, that common denominator of poor, right? Like if you help this, it, it, it alleviates so many different issues, the intersectionality of 
those issues, right? Like, and Shirley Chisholm understanding that and understanding that that is where our strength lies and how we are with our weakest links, you know, like you can't be a great nation or great country if you're dealing with these kind of problems and your most vulnerable are at risk like that. So to understand that and to understand that's how we make ourselves a better place to be that again, that intersectionality, you know, understanding the socioeconomics, the, you know, the, the gender identities, the, you know, uh, or sexual orientation, equal access to reproductive rights, like all of that works in play to make better li- livelihoods for people. And people are thinking about a lot of these different things at the same time. So I, I just, I, I love hearing that about her. That made me think about um, one of her biggest passions for legislation that ultimately, unfortunately, did not pass, and we still don't have it today, which kind of shows you something about our country. It's universal child care. <sighs> Free universal child care. And Shirley reasoned that it was so important because child care was keeping poor people even poorer. And still to this day, we do not have it. But just fun fact, that was one of her her biggest focuses during her political career. That would be deep. I'm trying to think of a time that I would want to watch somebody's kids for free. No, I'm joking. But yeah, the government <laughs> would pay you as opposed to the worker. I'm just in my head. I'm like, that would take a lot of funding and it better be right. Right, <laughs> it better be right because if you're trying to tell me, oh, just do this one off the strength because this is a part of the <laughs> right, but you know, that, but it has fallen so into how women have been excluded from the workforce, how True. You know, the government feels it's okay to not pay women the same because of these needs that hold women back from getting into the workplace and then not having proper childcare because you know. For the most part, child care and child rearing has been placed on the shoulders of women. And that's not to say men don't. Obviously, they do. But by and large, that is expected of women. And, you know, it is usually the women who take that that burden on and not having reliable and safe child care keeps a lot of women out of pursuing lots of things, pursuing careers, pursuing higher education, pursuing all types of things, because that is a huge barrier. I mean, in my own life, childcare or lack thereof has been a massive barrier and has prevented me from getting places where I've needed to be probably a lot sooner than I could have, because what do you do? You, you know, you have to have care for your children. So you take jobs that don't pay as well, but have more flexible hours or, you know, you end up working in childcare so you can have your children there, but that doesn't pay you very, very well sometimes because it's privately owned at that point. So, right. You know, yeah, it's it, definitely okay. expensive. Oh God, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's like a car. It's more than a car payment. Yep. Yes. Shirley also raised the minimum wage. That was mm. um, part of her legislative career. That was a success. Um, fun fact: the minimum wage today has been the same for like what over a decade. So we can see how it's like hand in hand. You don't pay people enough, and then you need them to pay someone else for child care it's a lose-lose situation it's like keep the poor poor 
But Shirley would find herself to be a super successful politician. She was loved. She had a really great personality and really connected with her audience or her voters. So when she ran for the House of Representatives and got elected, she decided to run for the Democratic nomination for president, which is what tonight's story is going to be focusing on. Shirley wrote that she decided to run for the Democratic nomination because she wanted to show that it could be done. She wanted to help pave the way for other Black people to see that it was possible and for them to do it herself, themselves. I mean, isn't that great that she is already thinking of how she can help be a foundation to have other people stand on her shoulders? Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? setting that up for other people, you know, like, even if she wasn't like, even if I don't, I can make way to let people know you can do this. And and it didn't make way for how many other politicians that came after her because she was like, you can do this. It's so true. And that's all you need for whoever's listening to this and needs to know that right now, literally all you have to do is try, you know, they talk about how I believe when people have ideas, bringing those to fruition and going into entrepreneurship or whatever, you know, the goal is that they're hoping to attain. They say only one out of 10 people actually see it all the way to the end. And for that reason, like you're normally always going to win. You might have some twists and turns and it might take you into a different place, but like it's possible. So try whatever it is. Just try it. That was beautiful. Shirley's decision to run pissed off a lot of the established older members of the Black Caucus in Congress. They were like basically pissed that she didn't ask for their permission or tell them that she was planning on doing this before she announced it. The audacity of her to live her own life. (laughs) Like (laughs) that, and I, that's a very strong theme in our community is elders. You have to go through the gatekeepers. It lives and breathes within the home and it continues on outside of there. And it shows up in many different places. And it can really, as we'll see, like make people choose a side essentially, right? Like whether they stand and it's something not even related to the substance of the issue, but it's literally about did you acknowledge the gatekeepers? I mean, literally within the hip hop industry, they have people arguing over rappers flying into different areas and whether they checked in with different people and this and that and people making videos like I don't have to check in, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's such a thing. Is that a thing in other <laughs> communities? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know but I know it's but real I- in the black community. Oh, yeah. I mean, checking in with the elders for even in your own family unit, you know? Well, yep. Did you talk to grandma first? Yeah. Did you call grandma about that? It's true. But I think the danger sometimes in that is sometimes our elders are afraid to do stuff that rocks the boat. They're afraid. They're like, let's just keep the status quo. And keeping the status quo never helped Black people thrive. It made white people comfortable, but their comfort did not help in our success you know like like martin luther king jr you know he did not consult the elders and a lot of the elders in some 
situations called him, you know, a shit stirrer, you know, like, you know, you didn't talk to us. You should not be doing this. You're too loud mouth. And, you know, had he listened to the elders, how much further back we would be. So sometimes like, you know, it is very cultural, but sometimes the elders are set in their ways, but they're not open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And that can leave us in the dust. It can leave us in the past and it can leave us begging for scraps when we, again, should be at the table making decisions. Yeah, well said. So later in life, Shirley said how hurt she was by the black men in Congress who attacked her and never supported her. Quote, what hurts me more than anything else is this, that if the brothers, and I'm talking about the brothers in politics, I'm not talking about the masses, if the brothers would only leave me alone and stop attacking me so much and stop giving out the wrong statements about me, I'd continue. End quote. First of all, I'm dying because she was like, let me clarify, because I know some of y'all are going to be like, but I, I'm not talking to you. Okay, first of all, because I have to tell my brother that all the time. I'm like, you're married with a whole life. I'm talking about single men that are acting like, anyways, I'm sorry, that hit a trigger for me. I love it. I love it. It's so true. But what about, it's the what about it. Yes. I'm not talking about you. So good with the quick wit and the sharp knife in communicating the idea. This quote is important because women stood behind a lot of men running the plays and did not raise a hand and say, well, it was actually me who thought about this March. It was actually me who gave him that one liner. It was actually, and literally the request of be just you don't even you really don't have to show up if you would just stop talking about things that aren't correct in an attempt to sabotage then I could handle what I'm trying to handle like I respect what you're trying to do you know so I'm I'm running my own lane that's why I even established this lane and that is something that we constantly run into because the conversation of women empowerment the conversation of black women empowerment is often viewed as a conversation about women replacing black men you know and that is not the discussion the discussion is that we are just as much able to contribute so we want to do that like she said we want to continue well it's like it's like that analogy i love it so much it's like equality is not like pie if i take a piece you it's not that you have less pieces of equality right you know and that is something that i think black women have experienced time and time again it's like like well no 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 we want equality but like men have to get it first and then you still need to be subservient because you're still a woman it's like no 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 me having equal rights as you does not take away your rights so true you know i also think that you know a lot of times the white hierarchy pushes that narrative down to keep the infighting happening you know like well are you really going to let these women pull that? I mean, like, again, this intersectionality or lack thereof is what holds you back. Because, I mean, you know, could you imagine how much more powerful we'd been if Black women and Black men worked together rather than, you know, bickering and infighting? I mean, it's the infighting that makes this absolutely impossible, you know? It, it kind of, like, 
you were saying earlier, Blue, and I just got this flashback to my big fat Greek wedding, um, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> the part where the mother is talking to her daughter and, you know, I mean, it's problematic a little bit, but it, it I liked it. She was saying, you know, yes, the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck. The woman turns the head any which way she wants. And, right. she, you know, behind the scenes, she can do stuff like you were saying, you know, but the head isn't going anywhere without the neck. And it wasn't just from black men. Shirley also talked about how she didn't get the support from white women feminists either. Um, surprise surprise right i wasn't surprised either (laughs) (laughs) and here we go at the time uh when shirley was running some well-known white women feminists included betty Friedan and gloria steinem white feminists offended black activists at times sometimes this is like cringeworthy Get ready. Sometimes Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and other white women feminists would point out that their financial contributions should let them have a greater voice in the campaign. Ooh. Ooh. We still do that today. Take several seats. Worse, (laughs) some white feminists' interactions with Black activists and voters were unappealing or downright offensive. This is the worst story I could find. So buckle up. Betty Friedan, she was super excited about Chisholm's campaign and she was determined to be involved. So she came out with this super awesome idea. Friedan hired a public relations firm and threw a fundraising party for herself as a Chisholm delegate without sharing the money with the Chisholm campaign. That's no. <laughs> what? She she raised money under Chisholm's name but didn't give Chisholm any of the money? Yes. This is one of our best I mean, examples all... of white women Sounds at like this an... time, too. Isn't that embezzlement? Like, it, like isn't that illegal? <laughs> like, it okay. feels very it illegal. It gets worse. So then the Saturday before the New York primary... Free Dan decided to campaign for Chisholm with a quote traveling watermelon feast. No, I, no, no. <laughs> it almost makes complete sense because there's not one point where it was like, yeah, so she went and asked. Main piece missing. She went and asked, how can I help? So, like, if you didn't stop and ask any of those questions, clearly you were showing up all the way wrong. This She's is like, what? I 60s, know what the black 70s. people want. Right. <laughs> they love that watermelon. This yes. will get them on our, oh my God. I just, same way they treated I, Ida in the 1800s. The same thing is going on. This is like 1972. So Can I also just yes. say like, it, it's just... Can we just these fucking tropes? I, just, everybody loves watermelon. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. Is it, it is. It, it really <laughs> is. I thought about that when you know, Liz, you started off talking about how her family had migrated to New York. You know, and we as a people really have to get over this BS that first of all, like anywhere anyone's family is from, where they they live, like. 
we are all people. We're all human. We all have the same needs. With those same needs, we do things the same, just a little bit differently. It comes from the media or whoever passes the stuff down for an element of control and power. And they, they create these ideas that we're so separate and we need to be in this constant um, fight against one another. And it's old and it's tired. It's so tired. Exactly. It was the newspapers would draw racist depictions of black people. And one of the this was this went all the way to like Ida in the newspapers and one of the common depictions was a black person eating watermelon and that's why for for the doves that might not have understood everything that's being said just now like it's a racist trope stereotype that was done by newspapers when ida and frederick Douglass were around so i actually had oh i'm sorry no what so I actually had a coworker years ago. We went out to lunch and there were like six of us at the table. Um, we were at a site down south and I wanted some, we were at a, a, a Chinese food restaurant and I wanted some fried wings because the fried wings from the Chinese restaurants that I go to in Philly and Jersey are always banging. So I was like, okay, let me ask. So it is not a common thing where I was. So the guy looked at me like, no, we definitely don't have those. I don't know why you asked for them. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Exchange between me and the waiter. I turned back to the, the menu to mind my own business, find something else because I'm just that person. It wasn't on the menu anyway. And I think I can make up stuff. So I'm like, okay, let me go back to the menu, find something. And one when after I put my order in, the waiter takes care of everything and walks away. My coworker says to me, did you want any watermelon with that? And I was like, whoa. I was shocked. Like even now from the embarrassment and just how disgusting it is when people do stuff like that. And how honestly, a lot of times, like, I guess it depends on your personality type. But your response can be so varied when you're hit with those things. Like now I think I feel, as I'm talking about it right now, I feel more of it than I felt in that moment. Because in that moment, I had to save face, right? Because I already knew I didn't need him to bring up the, the watermelon to let me know that I was the only black woman at the table. That, mm. that wasn't necessary. I was well aware of that. You know what I mean? So I had to jump into how am I going to save this? How am I? Because this is what we do too, right? right? How am I going to not make him feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. so that we can continue on with this lunch so I can continue to get paid essentially? Like mm -hmm. my good, my job is good. It is what it is. But that was so, because I remember my project manager said something to me about it. But the interesting thing is, and this is when it goes back to that quote, right, of who you need to stand up for you in certain moments. You said something to me, but you didn't say anything to him at the table when it could have been addressed, you know? And that's why when I talked about all of those things of what they say about Black women before we even open our mouths, before we even enter the room, and how you have to 
still show up as those things, right? Because if I wasn't strong, if I wasn't outspoken, if I wasn't able to be bold in that moment, I would have cowered to a space that could have been leaving my position or now not using my voice and contributing to the project. So it's, it was deep. And, you know, Dove, just, this is double consciousness, having to understand your space and your place as a black person at all times and how you are being perceived and how you come across. Because I guarantee you, the person who made that comment said that comment and then went about their day and did not think twice about it. And yep. here you are having to do these mental gymnastics of how am I going to navigate this system as a black person so I don't make everyone uncomfortable. Yep. I know I'm upset because I haven't responded in a way it's insulting, but I have to sit here and take it. Well, how far do I take it? Do I right. say something? Do I not say something? And pretty much every black person you know does this relatively often we right. always have how am I going to be perceived in any situation but especially in situations where people make these offhanded comments that are harmful and hurtful and it does a lot of damage Th these microaggressions wear on your soul all the time and how you navigate these spaces and how you again like you said you said it perfectly how am I going to save face when you're thinking about saving face when you're not the one who committed the faux pas. You're not the one who said the fucked up thing. But now no. you have to make sure that you protect this other person's feelings when no one was there to protect yours. Yep. And it, if it wasn't for women like Shirley Chisholm, like women in my family, like other Black women that I've seen that literally just said, I did this so that you could see it could be done, I could have thought that was the stopping point. And so many of us experience that. And that's why her story is important because just knowing that it can be done is a game changer. It's a game changer because you realize you don't have to sit in the BS. You know, there's so more, so much more beyond that. Unsurprisingly, Black women were across the country were some of Shirley's biggest supporters for her presidential run because she made sense like she made so she was just all of the parts that you're just like well duh yes these all make sense how would this how does this not help everybody else the common denominator of helping everybody so the whole country goes well and black women being on board with that like yes all of that makes sense why would we not do that thing Shirley's campaign was under underfunded and at sometimes unorganized, but Shirley was like brand new and a novice to running a national campaign. Shirley said at one point um, she was not running a presidential campaign for blacks or for women. She was a black woman and her agenda was for black women. Again, so we're like returning to this theme that we've seen on the Red Dove so many times where Shirley's bringing black feminists theory to politics how does that show up for you rainy having something that's dedicated to you i think it means everything because as you see i mean just in these two examples of how shirley chisholm was railroaded you know being black doesn't mean that you will have support because you are dealing with you're still a woman 
And so black men sometimes are problematic. And then being a woman doesn't always work because you deal with white women. So navigating those two spaces is exhausting as a black woman, woman, because you have these different areas that you have to, you're fighting up against. So for her to be like, I see you black woman, and I understand how difficult that is, you know, just saying I'm here for women with the women's movement does nothing for black women. The women's movement leaves black women behind the black movement doesn't always remember black women or puts black women in subservient roles or tells black women it's not your turn yet. So to have someone speak for us and be like, I see both sides of you because being a black woman is a very, very, very specific thing. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, I'm a woman too. So I understand what it's like to be a black woman. No, you do not. Well, I'm black too. I understand what it's like to be a black woman. No, you do not. It is very specific we encountered very, very specific things that, you know, it's almost a double whammy sometimes for us, you know, being women and being black. And we deal with the negatives of all of it, but sometimes there aren't as many positives to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So one thing that's been showing up, um, I guess to me, not for me, but it's been a more frequent conversation is, healthcare and black women. And I remember years ago, I had a friend that had shared, she almost died um, during the delivery of her child. And she shared how she felt that the doctors didn't consider what she was saying when she was talking about her pain levels and different things like that. Um, And I remember when she was telling me, I heard her, but I didn't I think I kind of put it to the side because I have no idea about labor pains, you know? So I was just like, wow, that's something I can't relate to. And I just kept it neutral. Right. And then someone else talked to me about that. And then someone else talked to me about it from a cancer standpoint. And I've been hearing it more and more often. And it's something even such as that, the neglect that, you know, people discuss towards black women, from health providers is really, really deep because that's so unique. Like it hits one specific population and it's very easy for everyone else to say, well, I mean, it's you probably were kind of out of it then, you know, you might not have been thinking in your right mind. Like it's so easy for someone to assign a story to you during that time. And it's true. And because black women aren't believed, I mean, I, with my own children, I came off of the epidural with my daughter and I remember shaking uncontrollably and I was very afraid of what was happening to my body. And I remember being surrounded by white nurses and me saying something's wrong and they're just like, it's fine. But nobody was explaining to me what was happening. And I remember being terrified. Like, I don't know why I can't stop shaking and being afraid that no one was going to listen to me. And thank God, my OBGYN was a black man and he saw me crying and he explained, this is what's going on with your body right now. But like how easy that would have been. But again, they just marked it off. Like you're being dramatic. And I was like, I'm terrified. This is my first child. I don't know why I can't stop shaking. I don't know what's going on. My baby's over there. I can, I'm about to bite my own tongue because I'm shaking so hard and no one will tell me what's wrong. Do you You think that's related to the myth that Black people, Black women have a higher pain tolerance? 
Absolutely. I mean, we talked about that in the that episode where we talked about the adultification of black girls. Right. You know, there is that theme, that idea that black women and black girls don't need as much nurturing. We are tougher. We're stronger. We know more about sex. We just don't need as much guidance. We don't need as much help. We are not the ones that need to be protected or cared for. You know that, oh, you're so strong, strong black woman, you know, but strong to what point to where we're dying? I mean, and, and it happens. I mean, there's a woman who died she, when COVID was happening and she gave birth and she ended up dying in her own home after giving birth three days ago because no one would listen to her. I mean, if you look wow. at, I just looked it up uh, at www.gao.gov. It's, you know, talks about um, the uh, disparities of the maternal death rate. So in the U.S., the maternal death rate for Black or African-American, not Hispanic or Latina women, was 44 per 100,000 live births in 2019. And then it increased to 55.3 in 2020 and 68.9 in 2021. In contrast, white women was 17.9 in 2019, 19.9 and 26.1. So in 2021, for every 100,000 um, live births, uh, 68.9 black women died as opposed to 26.1 white women. Wow. I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's, it's double. We die at almost, we die at more than double the rate of our white counterparts. Right. When we're a first world country, we're a first right. world nation. We should have some of the best healthcare on the planet, but black women are still dying in childbirth because we are not believed about our pain. We are not believed when we're saying something is wrong. We are thought that we are not as smart or we are not as we're making things up and it costs lives. And it is a very real fear. Mm -hmm. It was a very real fear when I had my children. Wow. I remember being very, I remember my mom telling me, don't let them tell you what you know is wrong. We almost lost my mother when she had my younger sister. They were like, you need to fill out this paperwork. My mom was like, I am having a baby right now. And they're like, you're fine. You're fine. Then realized that she wasn't and had an emergency delivery. And we almost lost both of them. It was wow. so traumatic for my mother. It was my, my younger sister almost died in birth. So did my mother because they did not believe her that she was in pain and she was in labor. Wow. Shirley decided to advance her Black feminist agenda at the Democratic Convention, where all the candidates for the Democrat presidential nomination would gather together. They'd advocate for different positions that were important to them. And then some of those would make it onto what's called like the official Democrat platform. And all about it, Shirley decided the bargaining chips were delegates. The currency at the convention were delegates. The more delegates you had, the more power you had to wield and advance your ideas, what's important to you to make it onto that platform. And for Shirley, what she brought, two big things were abortion and LGBTQ plus rights. She did not get abortion on the platform, but she did get LGBTQ plus rights on the platform. So delegates are like when you campaign state to state, you win certain delegates. They're like literally people, I think. 
who go to the convention and vote for who they want to be the presidential nomination for the party. So Shirley's whole strategy, like for her presidential campaign, because also remember, let's never forget, she was underfunded. So she had the luxury to go every which way, right? And there was a part of this was like, this is a win-win because I want delegates to maybe influence the platform with my ideas. So it wasn't about like winning would be great, but I'm already winning because one, I'm doing it too. I might be able to affect change right now. So she goes to the South and all of her aides were like, let's not even bother going down here. These people are not, they don't understand you. They're not going to support you. It's a waste of our time. Well, guess what? The Southern states, she got a lot of support and Shirley said that she had a great time and she realized how wrong she was to categorize people and to just see people as people. Fun fact. Um, Jersey, she won all the delegates, but it was an uncontested campaign. <laughs> <laughs> but Jersey, whoop, whoop. Sometimes. <laughs> Depends on how they're feeling. If it's a, if it's winter, I don't know. If the sun's out, we get along pretty well, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, been following this blue, but we just stopped talking about the Super Bowl loss on our sports radio stations. Yeah, I've been in mourning for a minute. I just, even my coworkers were like, I'm really sorry about your Eagles. I was like, <laughs> thanks. Don't bring it up again. Yeah, right? Don't bring it up again. Like, oh I was pretty pissed, but don't get me started. So, it's <laughs> just so true. Oh my God, Lee. Yeah, I mean, really, the way things are looking right now, I don't think that we needed it because we got some things we need to handle in Philly before everybody comes outside. But, um, yeah, like, because I remember when they won the last Super Bowl, it went down. We had so much fun. But like anyway, to take off that. But anyway, yeah, surely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Jersey representing me in blue what happened in rainy state what was california like originally <laughs> this one's for you rainy oh okay i'm sorry i was like wait are we still talking about the super bowl <laughs> <laughs> stop bringing it up so I was like, we have a lot of football teams here so it depends right. on what you're talking about right <laughs> Well, Shirley wasn't even going to go to California because California had this rule at the time. I don't know if they still do where it was a winner take all system. So Shirley's just yeah. trying to bag these delegate numbers and she's like, mm, time, expense, energy. Probably I'm not going to win enough to take all. Let's keep it moving. She didn't even send money or official people from her staff to run California. Instead, what she did, she had a lot of, she was always about like making like coalitions between different groups of people. That was like one of her biggest successes from the moment she started in New York till the end of her career. So she made all these awesome coalitions of different groups of people who were very passionate and believed in the same things that Shirley believed in. And two of, and they were all volunteers. It was incredible. But two of these 
individuals who would go on to bring Shirley the most delegates from California were two black women college students, Barbara Lee and Sandra Gaines. Mm. Uh, See, look at black women in college. Uh, Love it. I love it. They were single mothers. Oh, yes. (laughs) Sorry. Brainy's like speaking my language. (laughs) Mama say, Mama say, Mama (laughs) Kusa. Yes. Yes. Oh, tell me more about my people. (laughs) Right. Okay. They were single mothers and juniors in college from Northern California. Yeah. Not as impressed, but all right. Oh, shoot. Uh oh. We see where the line is. <laughs> There's a difference between NorCal and SoCal. <laughs> I hear you. We got the same thing in Jersey. Don't get us started. So, we still don't know if there's a central Jersey to this point. We know, we know there's a central, we know there's a central California. We just don't bother with it. <laughs> Boom. They went to an all-women college called Mills College, and Sandra was um, raising three sons, and she had won a Ford Fellowship to attend the college. Barbara Lee was president of the Black Students' Union and was also a, quote, community worker for the Black Panther Party. Ooh. They're back. The issues that Lee cared about were aligned with Black feminist power. Access to daycare, good housing, health care, and education. And when Chisholm spoke, Lee discovered that not only was Chisholm fighting for the things that Lee cared about, but also that the congresswoman was running for president. At the end of the speech, Lee was awestruck and went right up to Chisholm and asked if she could volunteer. Lee and see, James. see what happened right there. See what, see what happened right there. She went up and she asked, "Could she volunteer?" That's like the main piece that oftentimes people don't do in those spaces, and that's how we ended up with Fredman, whoever, no Betty, you know, showing yes. up and doing. That's the main thing. That's the main thing when people don't ask to help whoever they claim they're helping. You know it's going left. You know it's going left. And we talk about that all the time. Just, yeah. Yeah. The people just assume that they know what Black people need more than Black people know what what they need. Yeah. I promise you, we're really aware of what we need. Very. Very. (laughs) We know. (laughs) Ultimately, Barbara and Sandra put together Coalition of Black Power faith community, and women's activists. I thought they were so cool. I just wanted to take a quick little detour into these women. They really work their asses off. Did you, did you want to talk a little bit about... Yes. So they're back. The Black Panther Party volunteers for the Shirley Chisholm campaign. da 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 well, they were all about too, of course, you know, taking care of the babies. Like that was always a huge agenda item to them and making sure that people were fed. So mm-hmm. automatically, you know, it that's a connection right there because 
when you're focused on those things, you're really focused on humanity, you know? And like you were saying, ultimately, Rainey, the idea that we're stronger together. So if we have our basic needs met, then there's no reason why, you know, and similar that not going back to that crew, but that was a conversation I had with another one of my white counterparts because they wanted to grill me while we were on the way to the airport about how they believe that um, I probably voted for Obama because most black people just voted for Obama because he was black. How that came up, I don't know, but that was the basis of the conversation. Mm. So, you know, we somehow then got on the fact that people that sell drugs are greedy and all this and that, and that then went to another place and it was just like, wow, you have no idea, first of all, the true story of those things and what you're talking about, but the other thing is, going back to the fact that when people's basic needs are not met, then they have to turn to survival instincts. And that causes a lot of people to do things that outside of their norm they would do. And that's why it's so courageous, even to talk, for those women that you brought up um, from California in school, also single mothers, and ideally standing up and saying something that you can be killed for, you know, doing all these things at the same time to bring forth the idea, the possibility of people having their basic needs, fundamental needs, right, met. Yes. And I just, real quick, going back to what you said about Obama, I remember someone saying the same thing to me. And I said, okay, so who was it he was running against? It was, uh, who was it? Uh, McCain, right? The first time around? Yes, or I believe so. Yeah. Whichever one of those two white men. Um he was running against. I'm sorry for that. But I remember sorry, saying that. Sorry. Right. Sorry, not sorry. But I remember saying, okay, so then you're running, you're voting for this person because he's white, right? Same thing, right? And they're like, right. Well, no. And I was like, so wait, you're telling me that you're smart enough to vote for someone based off of their platforms, but you're telling me that because of the color of my skin, I'm not smart enough to base vote for someone off the basis of their platform. And they were like, uh, well, that's not what I, I was like. No, that's exactly what you said. Right. That's exactly like just let's call a spade a spade. So you're telling me I am not intelligent enough to make this argument based off of who he is and what he stands for because of the color of my skin. So true. Your president said it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that person stopped talking to me. Thank God. <laughs> right. They the Panthers gave her a thousand dollar check. They gave her a signed copy of Huey Newton's book to die for the people. And let's face it, it was probably Elaine Brown, but the Black Panther newspaper ran a full-page ad in support for Chisholm for president. Wow. Also, what's really cool with their support and their involvement, working with people like Barbara Lee and Sandra Gaines, they ran in tandem voter registration campaigns. Isn't that mm. awesome? So, like, they were campaign campaigning for Shirley, but they also were getting people registered to vote. Okay, so all of that experience leads us to Elaine Brown running for local office. Wow. And everyone's going to remember, go back and listen to our, I think it's like a three-part episode on Elaine Brown 
who at one point was the leader of the Black Panther Party. But Shirley Chisholm influenced Elaine Brown to run for local office. And following that election, we know the Black Panther parties um, campaigned and successfully campaigned to get a mayor elected to California. Again, all because Shirley Chisholm came there to campaign for president. She let us know it could be done. I love it. So we know Shirley ultimately did not win her party's nomination, but she got several of items that were important to her on the platform. This was the 1972 Democratic Convention in Miami. We will remember, and if you haven't, go back and listen to our episode about Ella Baker, the 1968 Democrat Convention. People like Ella Baker, or go back and listen to our episode of the Deacons of Defense and Justice. The SNCC, the core, the civil rights movement in the South, is why we have Shirley Chisholm and other people, other black people in the Northeast getting elected to office. So because of the work of Ella Baker at the 1972 Democratic Convention, Shirley Chisholm, there was the largest amount of women that ever participated in this convention. And Shirley I think she had probably 15 more years in Congress after this, but this is one of our favorite Shirley Chisholm stories because what it led to in the future, and it showed women and dark-skinned people that they can run and be successful in Congress. This story, our major source material is Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Power Politics by Anastasia C. Kerwin. Anastasia wrote that 50 years to the day after Chisholm was sworn in as the first black congresswoman, a class of 51 women of color, including 24 black women, were sworn into the 116th Congress, including Chisholm's mentee, Barbara Lee. Remember one of the, the, the volunteers yeah. in California, yeah. right? Um, Chisholm's allies, Eleanor Holmes Norton and Maxine Waters, and and Yvette Clark, who occupies the seat representing Crown Heights. And then, of course, there were the four first-timers who would become known as the Squad. Ayanna Presley, a Boston City Council member who won the seat out from under the Democratic incumbent. Omar from Minneapolis, who immigrated from Somalia as a child. Ida Tlaib, <laughs> who won John Conyers' Detroit seat after his retirement in 2017 due to allocations of sexual misconduct. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, who Anastasia describes as a dynamic newcomer who won an upset victory over the incumbent in her Bronx district. That's awesome how her legacy continues to present itself. The first thing I thought about was reclaiming my time. That was the first thing. Maxine Waters, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And the squad explicitly embraced Chisholm's Black feminist power legacy and invoked her 
as they began their terms. And they attracted a lot of media attention with their outspoken progressive rhetoric, which drew a sharp contrast to the cautious colleagues who seemed afraid of offering uh, offending conservatives. Mm, not much has changed. And respectability like, politics. <laughs> yep. 50 years later, and it's the same BS. And also, mm -hmm. like Chisholm, uh, the squad would attract negative attention for refusing to follow existing etiquette within the house that they viewed as interfering with their mission. That's what I was talking about when Black women show up as themselves. And mm -hmm. I have dealt with that my entire life, even to the tone of my voice. And to the point where it can definitely silence you, you know? So I think that's so important because even like I was saying, which has become a meme of reclaiming my time and Maxine Waters saying that and showing up and presenting the issues in the ways with the tone of voice that is authentic to them, right? Like someone even mentioned that, and I forget which space it was in. I think it was a coworker of mine, but... Oh, actually, it was a seminar that I was in and someone asked something about, I think, disrespect or something like that. And I really do have to give the uh, trainer her kudos because it was a white woman who did a great job explaining how that term used in the workplace can have so many underlying stereotypical and racist elements to it, right, of being considered as a black person or as a black woman specifically to speak about self and my experiences if you're not showing up in the male the white male european you know standard using their expectation of delivery tone hair all of those things then you're disrespecting the workplace or you're disrespecting the environment. And that is a very heavy weight to carry because what it makes you feel is that when you, when you show up authentically, you are not good enough because there's something wrong with you that not only is it that it's wrong with you, but it causes damage to the environment. And that's insane for us as people. And that's why things like the Crown Act and other conversations that exist about this topic are so important because it's so silencing, so silencing. Right. I mean, it's, we have to decenter whiteness. That's what it comes down to. I mean, these women coming in and, you know, even this whole like disrupting how the etiquette of the white house or the etiquette of the house, it's just, it's really what it is, is it decentering whiteness. It's decentering the idea that whiteness is white rightness that this is how things are done and anything outside of this is different it's impolite it's all of these other things and that's not what this nation was supposedly founded on it's supposed to be founded on diversity and difference of opinions and different livelihoods and backgrounds and you know i think that women like the squad and shirley chisholm are just demanding that america live up to what it says it's about Definitely. I mean, Liz shared with me not too long ago the space that she's working in to try to support others so that there can be equity and equality in in that particular area and district. They're still dealing with the same stuff. 
in places like board meetings or, or even just freaking on Facebook. Like <laughs> you can't silence us. Yes, no. say it louder for the ones in the back. You can't silence us. We outside. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, if you like this dovetail, leave us a review. Tell us what you thought about this story about Shirley Chisholm. We really appreciate it. It really goes a long way. It helps spread the word about this show. Major source material for tonight's episode is Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Power Politics by Anastasia C. Kerwood. It is a fantastic autobiography of Shirley Chisholm, and it has so much more information that we couldn't cover in tonight's episode. So if you love Shirley Chisholm like we do, we highly recommend you check out this book. If you choose to purchase this book, may we recommend Harriet's Bookshop. That's Harriet's with two T's, bookshop.com. That's where we purchased our copy of Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Power Politics by Anastasia Kerwood. If you're in the Fishtown neighborhood in Philadelphia, you can go into Harriet's Bookshop, or you could check out her sister store, Ida's Bookshop, in Collingswood, New Jersey. Until next time.